Thank you, Tim, and welcome to each of you. It is especially good to see those of you that are visiting this morning. Uh, I hope that you are feeling at home here, that you've been able to worship, and that again this morning, as we look to God's Word, the truth of His Word will speak to our hearts. Um, the topic this morning is um, one that you may have to take a couple days to chew over. Uh, this is not necessarily for the faint-hearted or for the, uh, the weak, but I, I think you'll understand why I have said that. This morning, the title of the message is, The Spiritual Blessings of Singleness. The Spiritual Blessings of Singleness. Now, I realize the spiritual blessings of singleness is perhaps one of the last things you have been thinking about during the past 24 hours. Nearly all of us have had the privilege to witness Matthew and Hannah's wedding uh, yesterday and, and to once again consider the mystery of marriage, uh, an institution designed and ordained by God to, to represent the relationship of Jesus Christ with His bride, the church. Yet this morning I make no apology to Matthew and Hannah, nor to any of the rest of you who are married in Christ for the timing and the content of this morning's message. You might ask, well, Dave, why would you choose this topic and this Sunday service to challenge all of us to rethink singleness? Now, if I were single, there is no doubt some of you would attribute my selection of this topic and timing uh, to be uh, um, an evidence of sour grapes, that here's a minister who is single, uh, who feels left out of the activities of yesterday and feels kind of alone this morning after attending another wedding, and so he's going to talk about singleness. But since I've been married for 38 and a half years, um, you can dismiss that notion. So why then? Why then talk about singleness? Because our secular society, and more disturbing, an increasing percentage of our church culture, even our Anabaptist church culture, too often is missing the biblical mark in our understanding of singleness. Thus, too many times our words and our actions in response to singleness reveal our lack of biblical understanding at best and our careless and callous insensitivity to singles at the worst. So here let me give credit to Barry Denelak for his research. I looked at some of his research on this topic. I want to begin this morning and end with four statements about God's plan for singleness. So if you don't get them at the beginning, that's what I'm going to end with. And I encourage you to at least make a mental note of these. And in between, I'm going to cover a wide terrain of Scripture. You're not going to have time to turn to all of them. I will give the references if you want to make notes um, that will support the four statements that I want to make this morning. Now, as we begin, I ask each of you to shelve your preconceived ideas and biases. Whether you are married this morning or whether you are single, and open your heart to receive truth. Unless you're willing this morning to maybe reconsider what you have thought, unless you're willing this morning to allow truth to speak to you, 
It'll be like the proverbial water off of a duck's back. Remember, what you believe is not what you think you believe. What you believe is not what you say you believe. What you believe is revealed by how you live your life. And it's no difference with this topic as well. So, I think I have your attention. Let's get started. God promises those who remain single in Christ blessings that are better than the blessings of marriage and children. He calls those who are single to display by their Christ-exalting devotion of their singleness truths about Christ and His kingdom that shine more clearly through singleness than through marriage and child rearing. Now here are the four truths I want to share, and I'll cover them again right at the end of the message. Number one, the family of God grows not by propagation through sexual intercourse, but by regeneration through faith in Christ. Secondly, relationships in Christ are more permanent and more precious than relationships in families. Now, of course, it's wonderful when relationships in families are also relationships in Christ, but we know it often is not that case. Thirdly, marriage is temporary, and it finally gives way to the relationship to which it was pointing all along, Christ and the church. The same way you no longer need a picture of somebody when you are face-to-face -face with them. You can throw the picture away. You don't need that anymore. Marriage is like that. Marriage is temporary. It's not eternal. The fourth statement, faithfulness to Christ defines the value of life. All other relationships get their final significance from this. No family relationship is ultimate. Only our relationship with Christ is ultimate. So to summarize those four points, God promises spectacular blessings to those who remain single in Christ. And He gives them an extraordinary calling in their life. So to be single in Christ, therefore, is not falling short of God's best. It's not. But rather, it is a path of Christ-exalting, covenant-keeping obedience that many believers are called to walk. Well, let's turn our attention to Scripture. Open your Bible this morning to Isaiah 56. We're going to go about midway in the Bible, and we're going to look at Scripture to the left, for that, and we're going to look at Scripture to the right. But I want you to focus here with me. Isaiah 56, I want to read the first seven verses. Isaiah 56, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. 
Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls a place, and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Notice verse 5, God promises to bless obedient eunuchs with blessings that are better than sons and daughters. God promises those who remain single in Christ blessings that are better than the blessings of marriage and children. But to see this more clearly, we, we need to see the bigger picture. In the created order that God established before sin was in the world, as well as in the covenantal order, God put in place with the Jewish people, beginning with Abraham, until the coming of Christ, God was primarily building up His people, His covenant people, through the mechanics of procreation. God was focusing His covenant-keeping faithfulness mainly on an ethnic people, the Jews. So therefore, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, being married and having offspring was of paramount importance. For one's name to be uh, kept, for one's inheritance, and for the preservation and propagation of God's people. Let's consider creation. In Genesis 1.28, the first thing God said to Adam and Eve is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in chapter 2, verse 18, before the woman was created, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Consider Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham was chosen to be the father of God's people, God took him outside, pointed to the stars, and said to him, so shall your offspring be, Genesis 15, 5. Now, when Abraham could not have a son because of Sarah's barrenness, he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. In other words, physical offspring mattered. And physical offspring, though, would have to come God's way. Well, God reaffirmed the same thing with Isaac when he reaffirmed his covenant. In Genesis 26, 3, he said to Isaac, I will be with you and will bless you. Uh, for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So offspring for Isaac was important, was paramount in God's plan. Again, physical offspring were crucial for the old covenant. Let's consider David and Saul. 
Offspring were crucial not only for the preservation of the covenant, but also because a man's name would end without children. In 1 Samuel 24, 21, Saul asked David to swear an oath that he would not cut off all his offspring for the sake of Saul's name. Yet again, let's consider the Leverite marriage and Ruth. Do you remember the system of the Leverite marriage? If a man was married and did not have children and he died, his, a brother, a single brother of his, was required by law to marry his sister-in-law, to bear children, and the first son was to be given the name of the deceased man to carry forth his name and inheritance under the old covenant. That's in Deuteronomy 25, 20, uh, verse 6. That was an amazing provision for the per perpetuation of a name through physical offspring. And perhaps the best well-known instance that we know of is with Boaz and Ruth. Boaz married Ruth to preserve, he said, to preserve the name of her husband Malan because they had not had children. In Ruth 4.10, Boaz makes this statement, I have bought Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You see, all of this is the background that makes this Isaiah passage shine like the sun to eunuchs and to others without marriage and children. Without marriage and without children, these covenant-keeping eunuchs get a name and a memorial that is better than sons and daughters. Don't miss that. Maybe you've never seen that before. In verse 5, I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. Now, where did this amazing promise come from? What is the basis of it? And what is it pointing toward? Turn back to Isaiah 53. Just one page back probably in your Bible. This is the great prophetic passage of the suffering of Christ who was wounded for our transgressions and was bruised for our iniquities, verse 5. But we often overlook verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him, this is speaking of the Messiah, to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. When the Messiah dies as an offering for sin and rises again to prolong his days, he will by that saving produce many children. He shall see his offspring. In other words, the new people of God under the new covenant that Jesus established in coming and dying on the cross, that new covenant the new people of God will be ushered in by the Messiah, will not be produced by physical procreation, but by faith in the atoning death of Christ. That's why look at chapter 54, the first verse. What does it say? Sing, O barren. Really? Under the old covenant, there was no greater curse than to be barren. But now the scripture says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. 
Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. The true people of God of the new covenant do not arise through marriage and procreation, but through faith and regeneration. All right, okay, so let's jump to the New Testament. Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul to the Galatian Jews and Gentiles alike in Galatians 3 says, Know then that it is those of faith that are the children of Abraham. Verse 27 and verse 26. In other words, it is not physical, biological descendants of Abraham that make you a part of the covenant people of God, but faith in Christ. Peter likewise says our inheritance comes not through marriage and offspring, but through the work of Christ and the new birth, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. So Jesus, Paul, and Peter all say in the New Testament, children are born into God's family and receive their inheritance, not by marriage and procreation, but by faith and regeneration. I share that to come to this statement. This clearly means that single people in Christ have zero disadvantage in bearing children for the kingdom of God and may in some ways have a great advantage. The Apostle Paul was single in Christ. And he said of his converts in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul was a great father. As far as we know, Paul was never married. Let him also speak for the single women in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul writes, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So it will be said of many single women in Christ, she was a great mother and never married. Now, take heed this morning, lest you minimize what I'm saying and do not hear how radical this biblical understanding is. I am not sentimentalizing singleness to make singles feel good. I'm declaring the temporary and secondary nature of marriage and family against the eternal and primary nature of the church. Marriage and family are temporary for this age. The church is for eternity. I'm declaring the radical biblical truth that being in the human family is no sign of eternal blessing. God has no grandchildren. But being in God's family means being eternally blessed. Relationships based on family, father, mother, husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, etc. All of those relationships are temporary. 
But relationships based on union with Christ are eternal. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. When his own mother and brothers asked to see him, Jesus said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, These are my mother. These are my brothers. Matthew 12, 48 and 49. You see, Jesus turned everything around in the new covenant. Yes, he loved his mothers, his mother and brothers, but those were all natural and temporary relationships. Jesus did not come into this world to focus on temporary relationships. He came into this world to call out a people unto himself from all families of the world into a new family where single people in Christ are full-fledged family members on par with their married brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing fruit for God and becoming fathers and mothers of an eternal kind. The father and mother in God's kingdom is the obedient believer be they married or be they single. So I invite you this morning, take a deep breath and reorder your world in regard to singleness. Mark 10, 29 and 30, we have this question. Single person, married person, do you want to have children? Do you want to be a mother, a father, a brother, a sister? Do you want to have lands? Renounce the, primary, the primacy of your natural relationships and follow Jesus into the fellowship of the people of God. And he says, you will have. You will have. So what shall we say then in view of this biblical vision of the secondary and temporary nature of marriage and procreation? Well, we're going to say this morning the same thing that Jesus and Paul said. In Matthew 19, 12, Jesus said, There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, we do not need to take this made themselves eunuchs to mean any kind of physical sterilization any more than we need to take Jesus' statement, pluck your eye out, to mean that you physically remove your eye. But it does surely mean that Jesus approves of some of his followers renouncing marriage and sexual activity for the sake of serving his kingdom. This is what Paul chose for himself. And what he encouraged others to consider. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, To the unmarried, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. In other words, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man cares about the things of the Lord. The married man cares about how he pleases his wife. I say this, Paul says, to secure your undevoted devotion your undivided, rather, devotion to the Lord. So now I end this morning where I began, with this scripture in mind. God promises 
those who remain single in Christ blessings that are far better than the blessing of marriage and children. Now, for those of you who are sure to ask this morning, well, wouldn't it be better to have both? <laughs> Can I have marriage and have sons and daughters? There are two answers to that question. The first answer is this. You will find out one day, and it's better to learn it now, that the blessings of being with Christ in heaven are so far superior than the blessing of being married and having children. You know, it's like asking if you want to have water, well, wouldn't it be better to have an ocean full of water than a thimble full of water? If you've got the ocean full of water, do you worry about the thimble full of water? If you've got a relationship with Christ, if you're single in Christ today, that matters far more than marriage or biological children ever could. Second answer, marriage and singleness both present unique trials and unique opportunities for sanctification. There will be unique rewards for both, and which is greater will not depend on whether you were married or single, but on how you responded to God's call in your life. So I say again this morning, to those of you who are single in Christ, God promises you blessings in the age to come that are far better than the blessings of marriage and children. Now with this promise comes a unique calling and a unique responsibility. This is not a calling to do what, uh, to extend irresponsible adolescent behavior into your 30s. This is not a calling to not grow up. What it is is a calling to do what only single men and single women in Christ can do in this world. And that is namely to display by your Christ-exalting devotion of your singleness truths about Christ and His kingdom that shine more clearly through your life than through the life of your married brother or sister in Christ. You see, as long as you are single, that is your calling. To so live for Christ as to make it clearer to the world and to the church that these four truths are eternal. I present them again. Number one, the family of God grows not by propagation through sexual intercourse but by regeneration through faith in Christ. Number two, relationships in Christ are more permanent and more precious than the temporary relationships in families. Number three, marriage is temporary and will ultimately give way to the relationship that it's been pointing to all along, the relationship of Jesus and the church. The same way a picture of someone is no longer needed when you see them face to face. You can put the picture away. That's what will happen with marriage. And number four, 
faithfulness to Christ is what defines value of life. All other relationships get their significance from that truth. No family relationship is ultimate. Only our relationship with Christ is ultimate. So this morning, I say to him be glory in the Christ-exalting drama of marriage and the Christ-exalting drama of the single life. Amen.